for Pacifica Radio, January 16th, 2022. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com and narrator of the new audiobook, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,600 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter at scotthortonshow. All right, introducing the great American hero, Daniel Ellsberg, leaker, liberator of the Pentagon Papers, and ender of the Vietnam War, and heroic champion of free speech and free media, and author of the book Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. And his latest is called The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And he's got this brand new press release out calling for the elimination of ground-based strategic intercontinental ballistic missiles out. Now, welcome back to the show. Dan, how are you, sir? Fine. Thanks a lot, Scott, for that introduction. Let me say right away, I'm happy to say to urge your readers to read not only enough already, but your earlier books on Afghanistan, Iraq, and those wars. They are terrific. They remain terrific uh, even after the horribly executed departure from Afghanistan, which I think you and I both wanted to see us out of there. But I'll speak for myself not the way he did it, which sure. uh, showed absolutely, I think, no concern for our Afghan ally, Af- right. Afghans, which I think has always been the case. Well, Do definitely you agree with that? you about that. But thank yeah, you very right. much for saying that, sir. And I'm extremely yeah. proud to have your name at the top of both of my books there on the war. So. Well, very, very enthusiastically given. And then one other thing, obviously, I didn't end the Vietnam War, but I was in a link of events of people who had to act in unusual ways that were unforeseeable. I was one link in that chain that finally led actually to the resignation of Richard Nixon, which was unforeseen a year earlier, which was essential to ending the Vietnam War. And the war ended nine months later. So we all played a part, and I'm uh, I'm glad, but certainly it was no one person, as as you know, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, the truth of the matter is, once the Pentagon Papers came out, The headline was, they were lying, and they knew they were lying all along. And now we all together resent that and want to see this thing end now. And so that is the extremely important role in the history of that war that you played there in shifting the entire American population's sentiment toward the regretful take of that war rather than the willingness to just see it through to the end and all these kinds of things, which had been the sentiment that had previously prevailed. So you do get the credit for that, for sure. Scott, that's so welcome. I mean, what you're saying, you know, is, is, is very true as far as it goes. And I don't want to start this by arguing with you, but I think it is important uh, in terms of our future and present to understand that even revealing that four presidents in a row had totally deceived us on this, I didn't convince the people that the fifth president, who was currently in office, Nixon, was deceiving them just as much. It was a year after the Pentagon Papers came out in 71. It was in 72 that Richard Nixon won the 
one of the largest uh, landslides in history after the Pentagon Papers and the war went on. In 72, a year after the Pentagon Papers, heaviest bombing uh, of the war, including the Christmas bombing. Yeah. And it appeared that the public's mood, which had changed about the war, and the Pentagon Papers played a role in that, had no effect on Nixon's policy. He was able to continue that bombing. And, you know, the war essentially went on for four more years, till 1975. The idea of Nixon was his, his secret plan, and he did have one, was to get American troops out of Vietnam, American ground troops out, he hoped, in his first year. And that fell through. He made nuclear threats in order to achieve that, a mutual withdrawal of northern troops in their country, and American troops to go home. They didn't buy that, and they weren't about to. So the war went on. His next goal was to get the troops out by his next election, by 1972. And he didn't quite make that, but he almost did. But in January and February of 1973, but his secret plan was to keep the war going by American air support, which was not going to be withdrawn, right. in support of the army we equipped, paid, you know, did everything, the, the essentially puppet army of uh, under Saigon. And they, we had rebuilt them. We had built them up very much, given them their own air force, actually, though not enough uh, against the North Vietnamese. But our air force was to make the difference there. So he planned to keep the bombing going indefinitely. And what stopped after the Paris Accords of 73, mm -hmm. there was, in effect, a moratorium then, as our troops were actually coming out. And his intention, and Kissinger's intention, was to send the bombers back as soon as the troops were out in February. And Kissinger actually recommended that. Nixon finally gave the order for the bombing to recommence in uh, South Vietnam, and ne if necessary, he was ready to go into North Vietnam again. But on April 15th, he got the word that John Dean had told prosecutors that Richard Nixon had ordered people to burglarize my former psychiatrist's office. Now, that's hardly in the league of invading Cambodia, uh, for which he was not impeached. But this was a domestic crime against an American. And uh, on that one, uh, people sat up. And he, had, he lied. What, burglarize? And then it came out that he, people had been brought up on his orders to incapacitate me totally. And they had uh, warrantless wiretaps against me. All these things to keep me from revealing the secret plan, including indefinite air support and nuclear weapons, when if necessary. He was so anxious that I wouldn't put that out, which isn't in the Pentagon Papers, which end in 68, yeah. before it came in, that he wanted to do everything to shut me up. And uh, so, including incapacitate me if necessary, uh, like the drone attacks uh, they talk of now. Hillary Clinton says of Julian Assange, couldn't we drone him? And uh, others say, yeah, he should be uh, executed very much. Okay, well, Nixon actually uh, launched that. They didn't do it for reasons I won't go into here, but they were in place to incapacitate me on May 3rd, 1972. They were caught in the Watergate weeks later. And uh, in that, and since those people could reveal domestic crimes against me and others, others that they'd done, uh, Nixon had to pay them off uh, to keep them quiet, to keep them lying to a grand jury. And finally, when John Dean and some others, with the help of some others, brought that out, 
Nixon was facing impeachment and he couldn't renew the bombing. As he said, he couldn't have a war with Congress on two fronts of uh, uh, the bombing and his own impeachment. So there was no more bombing and the war became endable two years later, it took. But had bombing continued, the question was, how long would the American people let a president or several presidents bomb another country so long as Americans weren't getting killed? And we have an answer, which you know better than anyone, uh, Scott, at least 20 years. Afghanistan has given us that answer. The American public has allowed us to both planes and drones to bomb Afghanistan, as well as having troops on the ground, for over 20 years. And we're still in Iraq. After all that time, although their parliament has demanded that we get out. Right. Somalia we, too. Ignore, we ignore that. We ignore that. Supposedly this elected parliament that we fought a war to in, in, uh, allow democracy in Iraq against Afghanistan. And when the democracy says, we don't want foreign troops so still fighting on our soil, the foreigner says nothing. Just keeps them there. Doesn't even have to answer. So uh, in short, Scott, you and I are in the business of revealing truths to the American public that have been denied them by the uh, executive branch and also by the media, the mainstream media. And that's what your books do. And that's what the Pentagon Papers do and so forth. But that's unfortunately, it'll be wrong. That doesn't automatically, uh, even if it does affect the public opinion, it doesn't automatically get an executive to stop a war that they prefer to keep going. Right. All right. Well, anti-war radio, talking with Daniel Ellsberg, of course. And now let's talk about H-bombs, strategic yes. nuclear yeah. weapons. We have what they call, Dan, the triad of America's nuclear deterrent. And this is meant to be so much power, essentially, that no one will ever try it. And well, so, therefore... Nukes, they've kept the peace among the major powers since the 1940s, and therefore that's going to work forever. And we have our subs, we have our land-based missiles, and of course we have our Air Force bombers. And these make up the triad that keep the peace on the planet Earth, according to the American National Security State. But you're worried. Okay. That triad, that number of weapons we have, Navy, submarines... But submarines that are invulnerable, can't be found by the other side, can't be targeted, and that's true essentially of Soviet or Russian submarines as well. Uh, actually, we do have a much bigger anti-submarine warfare than the uh, Russians are able to have for a lot of geographic reasons and others. Nevertheless, we have no reliable way to get rid of most of the Soviet submarines, right, I keep saying Soviet, but Russian submarines uh, now. So from the, within the framework of deterrence, without going into that question, with accepting the idea that you don't want to lead, leave, we, or the Russians, or the Chinese, don't want to leave possible adversaries with a monopoly of nuclear weapons. So they want to have some ability to retaliate to a nuclear attack in the same means, whether they use it or not, a survivable capability. The question is, what do you need for that purpose? And the fact is that the ICBMs in particular, and the huge number of submarine weapons we have, have no relation to that requirement. York, uh, who was the first uh, 
director of Livermore Labs, making uh, H-bombs, thermonuclear weapons back, and then director of R&E, uh, research and engineering in the Pentagon, later a big arms negotiator, said to his old Livermore Labs, once he raised the question in the meeting, how much does it take to deter an opponent rational enough to be deterred at all? That excludes, let's say, could have excluded Adolf Hitler. But uh, there hasn't been an Adolf Hitler in that sense uh, ever since. So if you, can, if you can deter them at all, what does it take? He said, well, most people, if they think about it, will say one thermonuclear weapon or animal. He says, well, say 10 to make sure you don't get that one. You have some left over. Or to take it from another point of view, what's the maximum killing death that one leader should be able to inflict immediately, in a week, a month, a year. Well, he said, there's no simple answer to that, but he says, suppose we say World War II, 60 million people. That's as many as you want an individual leader to be able to kill quickly. He said, well, that takes 100, 100 kiloton weapons, which are the uh, kind of normal for our missiles right now, 100. So he says, suppose you say then that the need for deterrence is something between one and 10 or 100, but closer, he said, to one than 100. That would get you down, by the way, to the range of about what the North Koreans have now. In other words, all the others have more than that. We have over 1,500 thermonuclear weapons ready to go, the ICBMs, on 10-minute notice. Actually, uh, I should say on a couple minutes notice, the president would have, if other missiles were coming at us, about 10 minutes to make the choice whether to use his missiles, get them off the ground, or lose them. And it's only the ICBMs that put that pressure on a president, not the sub-launch missiles, which can't be attacked. They can be under water there for up to a year or more. Certainly no, no issue right now. So if it's deterrence, do you need 700 weapons that we have on sea at sea now? No. But some, one submarine, two like England or France, one submarine or something uh, at sea would seem to do that. That function of deterrence was obviously, should have been given to the Navy, the submarines, exclusively more than half a century ago. I was in the Pentagon, working for the Pentagon at that time. And when the ICBMs became totally vulnerable to attack, so you had to launch them on warning to keep them from being destroyed on the ground. They should have been eliminated at that point, at our point. They added nothing except, you know, more nuclear winter, a little faster, uh, killing most people on Earth. But they are this hair trigger on the doomsday machine. And what I've been saying here is no country should have a doomsday machine in the sense of an ability to kill, even on the actual targeting, to kill most people on Earth. Not everybody, most people on Earth. That shouldn't exist. But it does exist. Yeah. Certainly the U.S. and Russia, Soviet Union then imitated us. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, their military said, oh, we had to back down because we don't have what the U.S. has. So we want what the U.S. has. So they acquired a doomsday machine. Neither should have that. But they're not going away anytime soon because it's very profitable in the military-industrial complexes of both countries, actually. Remember, they're, they're a capitalist country now. They have the same incentives to uh, produce these things for profit and jobs and everything that we do. But just looking at us, ICBM program has been pork 
for more than half a century. We call it jobs, and it is jobs, but you could have a lot more jobs than almost any other use that would serve human purposes. It's profits, it's campaign donations, it works in every party, it works today, right now on Biden. Yes, there are people in Biden's administration, there have been in every one, including George W. Bush and others that say, get rid of the ICBMs. The commander of ICBMs, General Cartwright, has said, get rid of the ICBMs. Perry, Secretary of Defense, get rid of the ICBMs. But no, now it's Northrop Grumman making the profit. And uh, with its lobbyists, more than one for every member of Congress, and um, these people, no, you're not going to get rid of them. But we should. And that's what we're saying. At least make people aware that we have maintained a risk of annihilation of civilization all this time that should need not have existed, should not exist, should go away. And maybe some people, you know, that we're talking to can bring some pressure on their representatives to counteract Northrop. That's pretty hard. Uh, we don't come with bags of money. But at least point out, at least give some consideration to the survival of humanity. All right. Now, it's important to note here, you know, we're listening to Daniel Ellsberg here. And of course, you have a reputation now of being this left-leaning peace activist type. And yet you're speaking as a real authority, as your book is subtitled, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. The reason you had access to the Pentagon Papers is because you were at the Rand Corporation. You had worked in the White House and the Pentagon, had the highest level bureaucratic experience in dealing with these issues, particularly the issue of nuclear war in the 1960s. And so that is the position that you're speaking from here that people need to understand. That's true. It was uh, in 1961, so that's 60 years ago, okay, 61 years ago, that I was drafting for the Secretary of Defense McNamara the top secret guidance to the Joint Chiefs of Staff for the plan for general war, trying to improve the drastically the Eisenhower plan, which we don't have time to go into now. Let me just say, as I looked at it then, working for the Secretary of Defense, in fact, I think every civilian who ever looked at it, and many military who didn't work for the Air Force, said the most irresponsible, reckless, evil plan in human history. And that sounds, you know, necessarily hyperbolic. How, how could that be? It isn't. But we don't have time. No, go ahead. We, we, we do have no, a couple okay. minutes. Go ahead and explain what you mean by that, because okay. I already know I'll what you mean. You, I'll I think give you the long term. Eisenhower's plan, he didn't want to spend money on a conventional war with Russia. He thought we could do it, but it would cause, if the army was allowed to consider uh, matching the Soviets over there, it would cause inflation over here and would destroy our economy and so forth. His conservative banker friends like George Humphrey, his secretary of the Treasury, told him that, no, the way you have to defend against the Soviets is not to plan on a conventional war in any circumstances, even a conflict over West Berlin or uh, Yugoslavia, even went there, Iran. You have to threaten nuclear war. And uh, moreover, you have to make it at all credible that we would actually do what we say we would do, initiate nuclear war against the Russians, a nuclear arms state from 49 on as we are today still committed to do in NATO, in Poland, in Lithuania, to initiate nuclear war, first use, you have to have at least some semblance that you believe you could limit the damage to the U.S. in that war. 
by preempting, by going for, by disarming them. Now, that's always been impossible since those days. You couldn't disarm them to the point that they would annihilate Europe and U.S. society, at least. That was even before we knew a nuclear winter. So it's been a hoax to think we can. Most of our weapons are not for deterring nuclear attack. They're for threatening first use of our nuclear weapons, tactical use, if necessary, in the Ukraine or over Taiwan. Those threats are being raised right now. And an issue, uh, t Trump actually uh, put into the budget small nuclear warheads for submarines that could be used, you know, in a, in a, in a small nuclear war, which is a fantasy. So the real threat has always been the threat to blow up most of the world. Or in, in uh, Eisenhower's day, we didn't know nuclear winter, so the, uh, the smoke in the stratosphere that would starve everyone by uh, blocking the sunlight. We didn't know about it for another 20 years. But what they did know was that our own, the reactivity from our own uh, fallout, from our own attack on Soviet Union and its satellites and China, come back to that in one minute, would destroy a hundred million of our West European allies by us, without the Soviets using any of the many mobile, medium-range missiles they had and, and bombers, which we couldn't destroy. Now, Dan, do I remember it right that you said that if there had been, there was only one plan, and the plan was yeah, yeah. invent of a crisis, Good. we would nuke every single city in okay. the Soviet Union and China. Is that right? That's absolutely right. So to sum up this plan, you asked about my hyperbolic statement, you know, about this plan. Here was the plan. In the case of any armed conflict with the Soviet Union, not China, with armed conflict like Berlin, uh, which is 200 miles in East Germany. So we had no chance. Uh, had 22 Soviet armored division in East Germany in the vicinity. We, we could not get through that if they wanted to walk into West Berlin. So the plan was to not only initiate tactical nuclear war under Eisenhower, because he always said pretty reasonably, if there's a tactical war, if there's a limited war with Russia, it will not stay limited. True, that was good judgment. It will go all the way. Therefore, better for us to go first and hit all of their military targets. And in General LeMay's form, this is what he'd done to Japan, to all of their cities. So the plan was in the event of any armed conflict, and by the way, they raised the question, what is armed conflict? Is it a patrol skirmish in the Berlin corridor? No, no. Should be, what about a battalion? Nah, no. Might be some of some rogue or something. If it's a brigade or a division, so they had 22 divisions there. If it's a division, it's general war. We then hit every city in Russia and China, the Sino-Soviet bloc, which didn't exist uh, by that time. They had broken up already, and we were reluctant to uh, think that because it, it did um, justify a bigger defense budget on Russia. So we hit every city in China as well, as well as all the military targets, which included targets in cities, as it still does. Bottom line, what? how many people would be killed? 600 million. That's without the smoke. 600 million people by our own strike without considering anything that Russia does. And that was in case of any armed conflict, as we're talking about right now over Ukraine. 
uh, or, or the Baltics or something. I come back to my statement. I call that the most insane, evil, reckless plan in human history. And right now, we are maintaining a risk of launch on warning on a false warning of the kind that we have received a number of times. Fortunately, just not long enough for the false indications of attack um, not to be discovered. So we didn't launch our weapons. We've lived with that real risk for 50 years, 70 years, which could have been uh, eliminated. Uh, 70 years goes beyond before the ICBMs. But we had those for 60 years, since 61, 62. So we could have eliminated that risk of a false launch on warning, which is a real risk, which serves no purpose whatever except money for Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon, General Dynamics, and Northrop Grumman. Yeah. It's never meant anything more than that, and that's been enough. Those profits have been enough to keep congressmen who get their campaign donations from these people uh, to keep that in the budget as of right now, un, you know, that kind of risk, totally irresponsibly. It could be ended uh, at any time, should have been any time in the last 50 years, but it won't be because we've proven that that kind of risk is for the money, for the money, it's worth it. Yep. The public could change that. Yeah, I mean, it really is crazy. I mean, the most cynical or sophisticated political or economic type expert might somehow just believe that the nuclear weapons industry is strictly demand based and that the Pentagon tells these companies exactly how many nukes they need. And that would be the yeah. end of it. Don't tell me you've got H-bomb salesmen who push relentlessly for this policy. And then, of course, yes, that is how it works. Just like with airplane sales, just like with combat boots or with anything else, the nuclear weapons lobby, it's, uh, as my friend Adam says, it's the flea wagging the dog. And here Absolute. the whole world Absolute. is held hostage by the profits of just a few men who rule these companies connected to the U.S. federal government in this way. That's absolutely right. The rationale behind it, uh, it's a madman theory of Nixon, you know, Nixon's madman theory. It's, that's what our nuclear and NATO policy has always been. If you make a move we don't like, it might be a serious move, bad move, we'll blow up the world. Yeah. That's our policy. That should not be uh, a human policy. So uh, I wanted to give you a chance here to talk about this new movement that you're a part of. That's pushing yeah. to let's start with getting rid of the Minutemen. So how can people participate in that? Well, by telling, as I suggested just a little bit earlier, by telling congressmen, by the way, Ro Khanna uh, of the Progressive Caucus, by the way, which, which has voted against the new ICBMs, the only ones who have voted against the budget. But Ro Khanna and Progressive just yesterday responded to that news item that there were 60 groups, more than 60, almost 70 groups, calling for eliminating the ICBMs, which puts it on an agenda, which it, that hasn't just, just hasn't been discussed mm -hmm. at all. At the most, they've discussed and failed to block the new ICBM, which will cost a hundred billion more in the next decade, a quarter of a trillion over the next life of the thing. We tried to block that. And even that, uh, that had serious opponents in Congress, like Adam Smith, uh, head of, very good, head of the House Armed Services Committee. So that looked like, hmm, maybe this is something we can really get rid of in the uh, the arms control groups and all. We've been lobbying on that for quite a while. And then the Northrop Grumman 
uh, lobbyists got to work and they managed to vote down even the idea of a study of whether to uh, keep the Minuteman going. Okay, so the new ground-based is on the way. Adam Smith had to change his tune. I'd like to know who exactly told him that had to be done. He changed and Truman says, oh, all right, well, we do need the new ground-based after all, having opposed it for a couple of years for the right reasons. So political pressure works on that side very well. And as I say, for the, however, some arms control groups, I think, got on a wrong foot, in my opinion, because in their urgency of killing the, quote, GBSD, ground-based strategic deterrent. So uh, instead of that, they sort of said, okay, keep the Minuteman, get rid of that. Well, that's a false position. The Minuteman is as dangerous, the current weapons, 400 of them, as dangerous as the new ICBM. So we just wanted to get on the record here. No, be clear, the, the existence of those ICBMs is the major cause of the positive, non-zero, real risk of all-out nuclear war. So it's a, it's a very long-term but very profitable delusion. Hang on just one second. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Green Mill Supercritical is the award-winning leader in cannabis oil extraction. Their machines are absolute top of the line. They simply work better and accomplish more for less than any competitor in the world. We're talking anywhere from a couple of hundred thousand dollars for the base model and up. So this is for serious business people here. But the price, as they say, will be worth it. Green Mill Supercritical customers' investments pay for themselves oftentimes in just weeks. Simple enough for almost any operator. Deep enough for master technicians. Their new novel techniques for inline real-time winterization are leaving their competitors in the key. That's greenmillsupercritical.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history, real economics, real education. So you mentioned the doomsday machine there. Mm -hmm. And now it has been two or three years since I read the book, but the way I remember it is that that's really a reference in a, in a more abstract sense to just the danger of the nations of the world holding these H-bombs at each other's head, but it's also a specific kind of a reference to, uh, I believe, a Soviet plan or, or system that they had set up where it really was, like in Dr. Strangelove, where if the Americans in a first strike had taken out their military leadership, the computers were set to go ahead and get revenge and finish killing the rest of us off anyway. Is that really right? Okay, not Yes and no, Scott. Okay, go ahead. Not, ex not exactly, because uh, <laughs> I'm sure my memory is worse than yours, but on this book, which I wrote, uh, I, I think you have a, an understandable slight mismemory on that. Okay, good. Just, well, set me straight. Go backwards. First of all, 
uh, I never it, I never thought of it in really an abstract sense, except when it was first proposed by my then colleague Herman Kahn of the book on thermonuclear war at Rand. Uh, he proposed the idea, concept, hypothetical, of a doomsday machine that, on being triggered by some action we didn't we wanted to deter, it would kill everybody on Earth. Now everybody. Now why he said would you even consider such a thing? Because it might be much cheaper than what we had. Uh, you uh, you could you could actually um, make explosions in our country that would do this, you know, produce enough fallout, enough radioactivity, various things. Wouldn't even have to lift them over to the Soviet Union. It would be a lot cheaper. Well, cheapness is not an objective for the Pentagon. And that's very significant right now. To say, uh, don't do the new ICBM, ground-based strategic deterrence, so-called, because it's cheaper to uh, just uh, upgrade the Minuteman. It does the same thing. Yeah, it has the same risks. It does do the same thing. So they said, just do it on cheaper. Well, that didn't prevail because saving money is not the function of the Pentagon or the U.S. government. Saving money that is paid to American corporations and American laborers and unions and whatnot and uh, media and everything. No, uh, saving money is not. Uh, is <laughs> they just threw 25 billion more than than uh, Biden had asked for. And Truman and uh, the Pentagon had asked for at them without specifying what it's for. No, here's a here's a tip, 25 billion extra on top of about a hundred and well, 140 billion, uh, 740 billion. I mean, they want 785. Okay, so as he said, however, given the fact that it would be cheaper, nobody will build this because it, it it's too automatic, and it kills too many people. In fact, everybody. So he said. No one will produce such a machine, uh, such a device. It existed right then in 1960. Uh, now that we know about nuclear winter, that the cities we were at, targeted to attack in, in Russia and China, Soviet Union, and in the satellites. Oh, look, correct that. In the satellites, we didn't target cities per se. We just targeted military targets that were in the cities. Communications, man, communications, air defense, a lot of air defense. It would, it would get all our cities anyway, but we weren't targeting them directly. But in Russia and China, we were directly targeting the cities, not knowing, because they hadn't investigated it, not thinking of the possibility that the smoke would take the form of fire. I'm sorry, there would be firestorms, as in Hiroshima, from the nuclear, or as there was in Tokyo with conventional weapons on March 9th, 1945. A firestorm that lofts the smoke up above the atmosphere into the upper stratosphere and so forth, where it goes around the world, doesn't rain out, and it blocks the sunlight. So given that, we then had an apparatus that if used as planned and rehearsed and trained and targeted, would not kill everybody. It wasn't a doomsday machine in that quite sense, but nearly everybody. Within a year of starvation, 90%, up to 98%, now or 99%. Now, that's not extinction. Even 1% is now 78 million people down in New Zealand and Australia living on fish and mollusks and so forth. A lot of people, but 90% go quickly. Um, from our own attack. 
So we did have a doomsday machine. Now, coming back, there is another ideological uh, bent of our of our Air Force and uh, and the military in general, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, very little known to the public, actually, even though they've announced it in, uh, in various ways, of what they call decapitation. Hit the command and control of the other side, the nervous system of the military, not just Moscow, where, by the way, they've targeted at one point something like 158 warheads. Uh, insane. Even uh, even um, Cheney, when he looked into it, thought, "My God, how do they have so many?" But he didn't. Uh, he didn't cut them down that much. But not only Moscow, but you know, every command and control everywhere, every, uh, uh, physical headquarters and everything. Now, I've always thought that it, the reason for it is obvious enough. It might paralyze the other side. It's the only way you could have a big nuclear war and not be destroyed by it, is if you paralyze them by it. So you can't get them off that targeting for the first highest priority targeting, as each side said, as Putin said, and so forth. Well, we announced that under Reagan before it had been more secret. And um, under Reagan said, yes, decapitation is our goal, and so forth. The Russians, especially at that point, said, uh, okay, we've got to assure that uh, that decapitation won't keep us from destroying the United States and the rest of the world. So they did devise a, a system which they called perimeter system or in, in vernacular they called it a dead hand system where if Moscow is destroyed automatic, they did have a variant of it, what you said, Scott. There was a design for the thing to be totally automated that a rocket, a number of rockets would go off from way outside Moscow if they got the word from via various lines that Moscow had been destroyed, various indicators, it would automatically go up over the missile fields with an execute order. And uh, that design allegedly was never turned on. And they had the order, the fact that Moscow had been destroyed would go out automatically to a bunch of lieutenant colonels who would decide whether with war going on and so forth. There was one human element here they would send up the rockets that would do this. Almost surely they would. That's what the Russian designer said. But there is a, a slight human element in it. But that's not different from the U.S. As I said, the doomsday aspect, without being automated, is there in the plan and the missiles, and yeah. it is there right now. The idea of it's going off on some kind of indication or something, automatically, it's never been, by the way, our military has talked about automating that whole thing, but they never did it. Mm -hmm. In fact, again, it was York uh, who spoke to one of the heads of the Air Command, uh, Lawrence, I think it was Lawrence Cooter, who said, well, we've got to automate this thing. And York said, when I mentioned earlier, head of Livermore Labs earlier, said, oh, we'll never do that. We will never, we'll never automate this whole thing. And Cooter then said very coldly, well, we might as well surrender right now. And they say, it's the kind of insanity in the high military that's equivalent to taking bleach for COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, uh, sounds and, about right. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and, and that exists. It's just an ideology. It's a cult. Well, and for uh, people gotta, that... Gotta, gotta, it's always been true on our side as well as the Soviets. Yeah. Uh, you know, earlier, before the Soviets, probably, that there was delegation. 
in case Washington is hit, in case the head of SAC is hit, Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, then others have the authority. They have their finger on the button and the ability, they have it even earlier, but at that point, the ability and the authorization to carry out their war plans. Right. So it's always been pretty... Well, in fact, Dan, time. don't you say in the book that never even mind in the event of a war having already broken out, but that, in fact, sort of the entire idea of the nuclear football and the control of the president is a myth and that there are thousands of people inside the military who could launch nuclear weapons on their own say-so, not just sub-captains, but people all over the different armed services, right? It's just, yes, <laughs> just a slight footnote there, Scott. It's not probably thousands who can do it, but it's far more than dozens and scores uh, who can do it, maybe hundreds. Nobody knew at that time, very hard to say just how many people could do it. And in those days, actually, when even a single pilot could have gotten the thing started, I go into that in the book, um, yes, you did have something approach, thousands, but that has been cut off. The, the pilot level, the missile silo level, uh, can't do it now. There are only how many? Nobody, I don't think anybody knows. But maybe 100, 200, certainly far more than one or two or three. And that's true in both sides. It's almost inevitable. You don't want your system to be paralyzed uh, by an attack or a single assassin or a terrorist attack or something. But neither side has been responsible in limiting the number of people who can do that uh, at all. Mm -hmm. So I take India and Pakistan. I, don't, I question whether their leader even knows how many people could actually uh, start their, their weapons, yeah. uh, launch them in a crisis. And that's true in uh, the other. By the way, England, France with their submarines, uh, they can't, they haven't, don't have an ability to keep their captains of those submarines from launching those. We didn't put anything in that uh, till in the 1990s uh, to keep a submarine uh, from being kind of the third largest nuclear power in the world. Well, so let's talk bad about George W. Bush for a little while. He got us out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. And then the idea was, oh, yeah, what are they going to do about it or something stupid like that? And then the answer was we found out in 2000, I believe, 18 in Putin's State of the Union address, whatever they call it, when Second. he debuted their new nuclear arsenal, he said that they had built a nuclear-powered cruise missile with essentially unlimited range to evade our defenses, that they built a new heavy rocket that can go around the South Pole instead of the North Pole and hit Florida or Texas, and that one of these new heavy missiles would carry enough warheads that they could kill every city in Texas. They could kill Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, El Paso, Corpus Christi, Houston, San Antonio, and, and kill all of us with one rocket, Dan, and also then a nuclear torpedo where they yeah. could say, you know, drive an H-bomb, uh, basically a drone submarine into San Francisco Bay and shut down the entire Bay Area permanently with yeah. a radioactive tidal wave. How do you like that? I don't like it. That shouldn't exist. But it is, as you say, a explicit, conscious, and effective answer to our anti-ballistic missile program. I was just reading yesterday in a defense uh, site that the Russians, somebody who's been over there, 
in, in fact, we, this is Lawrence Korb, who was an assistant secretary under Reagan, a, a very knowledgeable guy. He said the Russians, and this is in line with everything else I've heard, the Russian military really has and always has been very afraid of our anti-ballistic missiles possibility. Every scientist over here, everybody who's looked at that says, it can't possibly work. It's unworthy. That's kept us from spending trillions on it instead of tens of billions. Uh, that's one thing that the arms control community did kind of put a ceiling on. It was a total hoax to think that the anti-ballistic missile could deal with uh, decoys from their ICBMs and deal with it. Nevertheless, the Russians are so impressed by American technology, they've always worried they, the U.S. will come up with something that will uh, nullify our ability to retaliate. And the Chinese now, the same, with a little more reason, that's why they're building a lot more missiles, unfortunately, a little more reason because uh, we have in their vicinity there, we have possibly both from submarines and our bases there, the ability to send even very accurate conventional cruise missiles against their missile silos. And they have a very much smaller uh, base, their uh, force, to go after. So they're building up thanks to our anti-ballistic uh, efforts there. Putin has said that he will not lower the number of missiles so long as we maintain anti-ballistic missile sites in Poland and Romania which they like having there, the Poles and Romanians, because it's an American commitment. It's a presence. It's a commitment to them against anything from Russia. However, they can easily, as the Russians point out, they can easily be converted into offensive missile launchers, which would get Moscow in a matter of minutes, maybe 15 minutes or something, and bring into play this decapitation thing that has them has them concerned. So these threats that we're making, and again, the ABM is is nothing but a sales pitch. As I say, it's a uh, it's pork. It's a hoax. It's a hoax. Uh, can we start, can we go back to that last point for just a second? Um, the point about the dual use launchers here. It's the MK forty one missile launcher that you would use for these anti ballistic missile uh, missiles. And yet they're the same ones that you can shoot a Tomahawk missile with a hydrogen bomb tip from. Yes, and so yes. if you're Vladimir Putin, what are you supposed to think of that? Well, one way to think about it would be that any initiation of nuclear war by one of these superpowers against the other, it's the end of civilization. And you can't, you actually can't change that. The idea of limiting damage uh, is uh, hope. He, I must say, he can't count on... <laughs> Let me back off. I think I've given a wrong impression here. Can't count on our being crazy enough to think that we might get away reducing damage by going first. That is Air Force doctrine uh, for Sinisaliyevitz. So he looks at it, and although the ABM won't work, and although the counterforce will not disarm the Russia, will not, can't disarm Russia, the U.S. might think it could. I, I can't say that's paranoid. They, they, most of them do think it could. Yeah. And it, crazily, how can they be that crazy? Well, that's what I've learned at 90. Uh, everyone, anyone can be dumb enough to keep his job. And uh, to have a good job at Northrop Grumman, uh, board of directors, when you get out, our present uh, Austin, our present 
um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, came from the board of Raytheon. Right. Before him, two of the uh, acting secretaries of since came from Boeing and uh, the et cetera. So, uh, you know, that's that's part of their career plan. So opposing, uh, you know, not worrying about these uh, missiles, uh, particularly on either side, is not a good career move. And they don't do it. Right. And that's, that's true on both sides. Uh, you made reference before, Dan, to Cheney's objection to the war plan back in 91, or pardon me, 89, when he first became Secretary of Defense. And I had lost that footnote, but to me, it's such an important anecdote there about when the, the general showed him, I believe, the simulation on the map of this is what it would look like when we start nuking Russia, and that Cheney, old iron ass, as H.W. Bush called him, the meanest guy in North America, the guy tortures people to death so he can get lies, so he can start wars. That guy looked at the war plan and said, oh, my God, this is insane. What are we doing? Can you remind me where I learned that from? Uh, General George Lee Butler's memoirs, uh-huh. Volume 2, which are <laughs> you, quite You're the best. extraordinary memoirs, uh, says, I believe that story, uh, certainly first he discovered, see, this immense number of uh, as they called it, overkill, uh, on one target, you know, redundancy. And he tried to re- reduce it very much. And I'm pretty sure that it's in that book, that uh, that same book. I have seen it several places, but I'm pretty sure that it is in that one. And uh, that's probably where you got it. The You know, what it says about Cheney, I don't think there's been anybody who first looks at these plans who isn't, in Eisenhower's term, appalled by them. But they don't change them. And why don't they change them? They're, they're obviously insane. And let me tell about the plan I did. I didn't make that clear enough. My I blame myself now that I uh, was one of several, it ran a number of people, whose objective was to do better, much better, than this insane Eisenhower plan. But that was the wrong objective. Taking that as our target, that's so far off that uh, the plan I came up with could be said to be better, but it would have had pretty much the same effect. A way the, the way the Air Force uh, interpreted it, for example, I gave an option, I drafted, and this was in, in the, a drafted for not hearing Moscow, a drafted, uh, I mean, uh, an option, this by director of the Secretary of Defense, McNamara, an option not to hit cities. Well, as General Butler the last commander of Strategic Air Command and first commander of what they called Strategic Command, which we have now, which includes the Navy's Polaris and now Trident submarines. So he was the, the man in charge of it. And um, he ended up when he retired, and we used to call this retirement syndrome, uh, with the most outspoken uh, attacks on these plans I've ever seen by anyone. He called them evil and immoral. And he said, we have escaped all-out war. And he's a religious man. He said, by some combination of the grace of God, luck, and I think he said some prudence. And of that, uh, he said, well, he thought grace of God was, was the most important. I, I would I would emphasize the luck. But he says, I agree with him. It's a miracle, a secular miracle that we got through the last 70 years without a nuclear war. I, I wouldn't have predicted it. So couldn't we do it again? Yeah, another miracle, why not? But uh, it happened once, maybe it could happen again. 
except when you look at the record, you see that time and time again, far from being unthinkable, we were on the verge of nuclear war, secretly. We were always edging toward it. It was thinkable every day of the year within the executive branch. So, as I say, I, I definitely do blame myself in the 60s for taking no stand and not seeing that the ICBMs should be rescinded, should be out. You shouldn't have them. The Navy started by saying that, and they were right. But at Rand, I didn't, we didn't work, we always didn't work for the Navy. We were in contract to the Air Force, and that may, quote, have influenced our thinking here. But I think if we'd worked for the Navy, I actually think, again, being conscientious and not, not consciously corrupt, or just giving them what they wanted, you would have seen the logic that, no, you shouldn't have these launch-on-warning, dangerous hair triggers. These subs are not on a hair trigger, and they're not hair triggers. And even if you accept, uh, you know, the, the uh, idea of deterrence, and let me say, I do, to some extent. That separates me from some of, a lot of my colleagues in the arms control community, but I do think you don't have, you don't allow another superpower, somebody to have a monopoly of nuclear weapons. And I think that goes for Russia or China, as well as for the U.S. Mutual disarmament with verification, yes, that's what we should aim at. Yeah. But unilateral, no. Having said that, <laughs> to have, as I put it, a near doomsday machine, a near extinction machine, mm -hmm. has always been insane, and it is now. And you know what, though, if you put unilateral disarmament in its proper context, if America was led by exceptionally responsible men who said we are disarming and we are insisting that our friends and allies and pseudo adversaries, including Russia and China, follow our lead, too. And, and they knew everything they can to pressure their friends, the British, the French, the Israelis, to begin to disarm and do everything they can to shake hands with the Russians and come to eye to eye and figure out how we can do it together if America would just take the lead on that. And, you know, it's funny because, as we were talking about, I mean, the mutually assured destruction thing, it just seems so permanent. So many people take it as it works so well, and this is just how it's got to be forever. But, there, you know, for direct comparison, I saw someone make the other day, the world outlawed chemical weapons. It's not that they don't exist anywhere, but they are essentially banned. Um, and and there's, in fact, a new treaty. The Non-Proliferation Treaty really obligates us to disarm. But there's a new nuclear weapons abolition treaty that uh, almost every non-nuclear state in the world has signed in the last year now um, that the nuclear weapons states, of course, are resistant to. But people should really be thinking hard about this. There's got to be a way to keep Germany and France and Russia and Britain and America and Japan from all killing each other other than holding H-bombs to each other's head for the indefinite future. And, you know, every time I talk to you, I get the idea that actually these things are going to start going off here at some point in either my lifetime or the next generation or two or three. We're not going to make it when we have thousands of these machines ready to be detonated on a moment's notice like this. Well, I have to agree with that dark picture, Scott. Uh, I don't think it's exaggerated at all. The Yes, you've described what reasonable people should do. And we've had leaders 
who could see them, except that when they're in office, a lot of people see it before they're in office and after they're in office. I could name names, but I'm going to that. But that's that is the case. But well, you can name you can name Kissinger and Schultz and Perry and some yeah. of the most prominent leaders of the American national security state over the last two generations who now confess that oops, it shouldn't be this way. That's right. Okay, that's true. But when they're in office, then they say, "Oh, wait a minute. Uh, there's enough people influenced by the." combined lobbyists, which are thousands, actually, from, I'll name these names, General Dynamic, Raytheon, Dynamics, Raytheon um, Lockheed, Boeing, let's see, what have we left out, and uh, Northrop Grumman, there you go. General they Dynamics, fly. Honeywell. Yeah, yeah. so um, uh, they, you know, we need the votes, and certainly senators are in their pocket, essentially. And uh, uh, we need their votes for this other legislative program. We're not getting big pressure from the U public to do this. It's not an election winner. And moreover, if we move in this direction, we assure that uh, right-wing people, including some Democrats, but certainly Republicans, will say, you are disarming, you're, you're uh, you know, endangering us, which is not true for most of these cases. Absolutely not true. But a very potent political charge, and they don't want to do it. I don't think it will happen. As you say, we have these 69 groups who say eliminate nuclear weapons. Very reasonable. It's the right thing to do. Unilaterally on that one, we'd be safer. There's there's the unilaterals that we could take uh, and make us, make us all safer. But it's very unlikely to happen, almost uh, unlikely, uh, very unlikely, and that's true let me make a point that very important that I, I realize I haven't been making enough in last years. The we have reduced the number of weapons on both sides, U.S. and Soviet Union, Russia, eighty percent. Very very impressive. Eighty percent of the weapons. There was a time when there were sixty-seven thousand nuclear weapons in in the world between us. Compare that. Remember York's point for deterrence, one to a hundred, closer to one than a hundred, 67,000. Okay, we've reduced that by 80%. And here's a point that people don't know and doesn't get me, and I, I haven't made it now. It hasn't reduced the risk of all out nuclear war at all. As long as those ICBMs remain, and the Russians depend on theirs much more than, their, than we do, because their submarine force while enough to destroy the U.S., is is uh, they don't rely on it as nearly as much command and control and, uh, and against our anti-submarine warfare and so on. They will be much more reluctant to get rid of, though they could reduce reduce their ICBMs. Our submarine force makes, as I say, uh, has made the, even from a Cold War armaments point of view, which I shared in, in 1961, at that time, before Vietnam and uh, before the Pentagon Papers, before a lot of reading I've done, including reading like your own books, Scott, and really, that even from that point of view, you could say we're safer if we get rid of that. But without getting rid of it, reducing the weapons now to 3,000 on each side, 1,500 over 1,500 or so 
um, 2,000 reserve on each side. So about 3,000 on each side. Doesn't change the situation at all. You still have 400 missiles. You used to have 1,000. Yep. Now we have 400 missiles that have to be used or lost if there's warning. And the false warning continues to happen. And if it happens during a crisis, for example, we did get false warnings during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the Russians got them during what they thought of as a crisis in 1983. And if one man had not lied to his superiors, uh, Petrov, and told them, he, he really thought there was a 50% chance they were under attack. And he knew that Andropov and the others were in an alert mood, fearing a surprise attack from Reagan, who they thought was crazy, and who was talking about eliminating the Soviet Union all the time. If he told them there's a 50% chance that they're on the way, they would have they would have launched their weapons. So he told them, no, it's a false alarm, which he didn't know. His subordinates all said, tell them, go, we're under attack, we're under attack. He wasn't sure. If he'd acted differently, you and I would not be having this conversation. Scott, yep. gone. So the point is that risk is as great now as it has ever been. And, the, and that's very implausible to people. They think, well, we're going in the right direction. We've gone down by 80%. No. Yeah. The, the, the insane um, number of weapons in the world, well, what do you say, you know, by a thousand or so per, you know, times, right. um, ensured that you could get rid of 80% and still have more than enough to blow the world up. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough Already. Time to End the War on Terrorism, the audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Hey guys, Scott Horton here for Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. As you may know, the audiobook of my new book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally out. It's co-produced by our longtime friends at Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. For many years now, Derek Sheriff over there at Listen and Think has offered lifetime subscriptions to anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org donate or to The Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org donate. And they've got a bunch of great titles, including Inside Syria by the late, great Reese Ehrlich. That's listenandthink.com. Well, and look, just three weeks ago, on Christmas Day, it was the 30th anniversary of the Soviet Union's ceasing to exist entirely. The fact that we're having this conversation in the year 2022, it, I mean, it's great to see that you are so healthy and, and doing so well, Dan, but 
this is insane that it's even possible that this is the discussion. You know, Eric Margulies, the great journalist, back a few years ago during the height of tensions in 2014 and 15 in Ukraine and in Syria, he said that he had some contacts, old friends, among the very highest levels of the foreign ministry in France, spies and diplomats and so forth that he's known for many years. And they told him, this is as bad as it's been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. They yeah. were terrified that we were going to get into a real war with Russia over things that, where we shouldn't be messing around at all. Supporting terrorists in Syria, supporting Nazis in their coup in Ukraine and this kind of thing, where we're totally picking the fight unnecessarily. That's right. And uh, you didn't mention Taiwan, but I know you know that one. Oh, uh, and too. that's in my notes. I'm so sorry. Thank you for bringing that up because I wanted to ask you, um, I didn't get a chance to interview you when the New York Times put this out. The cursed Charlie Savage uh, wrote up this great piece yeah. that you had given him about some documents about uh, war plans for China in, was it 1958? 58. And when I said uh, there was a time when Eisenhower, on the one hand, restrained his generals, including the one I've been mentioning, Cooter in the Pacific Command, but he restrained them from the immediate attacks they wanted, nuclear attacks, to defend Komoi and Matsu Islands, one of them is a mile and a half from the Chinese mainland, very visible on a clear day. The, to maintain our control of those, they wanted to go to nuclear weapons. Now, Eisenhower restrained that as the first action. But he said, if it's necessary, if their artillery attacks are so effective, or if they add air power to them uh, to keep us from resupplying those little islands, then, yes, then uh, we'll go to nuclear war. And he said that in these documents that I revealed, in a way that was still top secret, this part of it, of Eisenhower uh, making clear that he was authorizing the use of the, he would authorize, I should say, retain the, I could come, there's somebody teach him. Okay. He retained control, I'll say for a moment, uh, for argument here. He would go to it, but he said, in the expectation that the Russians, the Chinese didn't have nuclear weapons then, that the Russians, their ally then, 58, will hit Okinawa or and Taiwan. They'll destroy Taiwan. They'll hit our bases in Guam and Okinawa. Well, that, by his definition, would be armed conflict with the Soviet Union, general war, in which, as I say, at that time, they were figuring on killing 600 million people. Now, this is Eisenhower. We haven't had a more mature, responsible uh, president since then. And this was the crazy stuff he was talking then. And I thought, uh, it's time for us to know that uh, you don't we haven't had the chance to elect people who put such a high priority on avoiding nuclear war that they will uh, refute, they will reject craziness like this. It's been there all along. And that isn't to say that it, couldn't, that it doesn't occur on the other side either. But Putin talks about, I don't know whether he really believes this or not, but he talks about initiating nuclear war, if necessary, first use, uh, for some reason. That's crazy talk, but it serves a purpose at the risk mm -hmm. of, of eventually blowing up the world. 
And that's but that's what I wanted to reveal in 58. I haven't seen any effect of that, I must say. Some of the scholars were very interested in it. Uh, they didn't know some of this stuff uh, that had never been declassified, top secret. And, well, and it's I, important I ha I now because... Been, I, mean, I haven't even been indicted. That would, that would draw <laughs> some attention to it. And I thought it would give me a case here that uh, in my old age, I always thought of prison as my retirement uh, plan. <laughs> and it would give me uh, the chance in court to argue that information like this, 50, let's see, it actually, we're talking about 58, but it was from a, what I put out was a top secret study from 64. So what is that? Uh, mm, over half a century, and I can't do the arithmetic at 90. So uh, you figure it out. From 64 till now, should this have been top secret as it is to know what, what planning we were making about Taiwan? I think not. Anyway, I'd be happy to argue that in court, yeah. even if I was expecting to lose. Well, and that's such an important point that in that story, and everyone should go look at it. I'm sorry, I don't have the headline in front of me, but just search uh, Charlie Savage, Daniel Ellsberg, Taiwan, nuclear, something like that. It'll come up. Yeah. And the challenge in there is, one, hey, everybody, look at what the American military is prepared to do to prevent violent reunification here. Take note of how dangerous that could be. But secondly, you really did throw down the gauntlet in the newspaper of record and dare and defy the Department of Justice to indict you and prosecute you under the Espionage Act. That's not fooling around, man. That wasn't just a PR stunt, Dan. There's no question that what I did and what I'm doing when I put this stuff out uh, is absolutely as indictable as anything they've done this century. Uh, any of the uh, eight or nine people that Obama prosecuted, uh, Julian Assange, Snow, uh, Snowden, actually Snowden's is a higher classification, it so happens. Right. But uh, fully in, indictable on this. Why haven't they paid any attention? I couldn't have waved a red flag more, more obviously. I have to think, uh, I don't think it's just because of me, uh, I, don't, I don't think. I think this is not a best case for them to argue that's which is their interpretation that something that is still top secret but 50 years old is a basis for putting somebody in prison. That's not their best case. But they don't need a best case. I talked this morning for the second time to my hero, one of my heroes, Daniel Hale, called me from Marion Prison, Illinois, this morning. And I'm flattered that he used his week's uh, uh, call. He gets two calls a week. Yeah, he called me yesterday and today we talked. He revealed the criminality of our drone program, our drone assassination program, which puts people for assassinating on the president's decision, including American citizens like Anwar al-Awlaki and his son, both born in the United States, assassinated by drones. Okay, what Daniel Hale revealed and talked about and did everything he could to publicize it, he was raving a red flag in effect. So he's in Marion prison. And what he, one of the things he revealed on the intercept, I think it was, that for every person targeted by this thing, uh, by drone program, an average of 17 other people get killed. People who are nearby, they have the wrong location, 
uh, the wrong name, whatever, mostly just by children, other people, every kind of person. And by the way, the uh, targets are also innocent in the first place, too, but yeah. Yeah, anyway, and that includes, of course, countries we're not at war with, like Sudan and uh, various other places where we're using drones, you know, where the legality of which is ridiculous. Uh, whether you want an assassination program at all, uh, you know, that's going to be imitated uh, very much so. You talked about automated uh, war plan. Well, our whole war plan is fortunately not automated, nor is Russia's. But automated drones, I think they're on the way. And they, you know, they will pick the targets, the drones will, and they will fire the missiles. And we'll get that in domestic systems eventually. That, I mean, that sounds as though I'm, I'm off the wall here. No, I'm sorry, I don't think so. So, uh, yeah, that's the virtual just, wall that the Democrats support at the southern border, Dan, is to have drones going around arresting people, identifying people and arresting people out in the middle of the desert somewhere. Just saw a new thing about that. But not, they call it the virtual but, fence instead yeah, of Donald yet, Trump's wall. They, they haven't yet armed them, is that right? But they could easily. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know if they have uh, weapons on. Well, actually, no, I think they, I think they do. Well, I'd have to go back and look, but I think no, the I'm promo that sure, I saw. I'm pretty sure they don't get. They oh. don't have automated weapons. I don't think we use. Oh, drones. I don't think they pull the triggers themselves, but they're remote controlled by men. But I think they may have, you know, shotguns on them to say freeze right there until the humans get there and arrest people and stuff like that. Look, people at Google revolted against the idea of providing software for automated systems like that, yeah. and they said, "No, we shouldn't be doing that." Remember, their motto used to be at first in Google though they changed it, don't be evil. Yeah, then they so signed the right up with the CIA and it's been pure they, evil they ever since. That. So a lot of people at Google said, no, we don't want to be part of this. this is always well, good, that was good. So Google came off the contract, but that didn't mean others didn't pick it up. It didn't stop the program. Yeah. So the program, of course, is just going ahead full blast. It's part of this uh, $25 billion that they added. We want more on cyber war. Well, and, of course, you can't think of taking out anything from the budget, which is mostly pork. Right. I say the ICBM part is toxic pork. pork. Hey, actually, I, as long as we're at it, one more thing, Dan. What about hypersonics? The story is <laughs> oh, that Russia yeah. and China are ahead of us. We blew all our WAD patrol and posh tunes down in the Helmand province, and they got a leg up on us on the hypersonics. So we got to give Lockheed a... Whole new trillion here. No, I couldn't know less about that, but I have read the book um, by uh, Andrew Coburn, spelled C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N. Um, what's it called? Spoils of War. And have you read that? No, book? I have it here, but I have not no, had a let chance me, to look at it. Let me yet. recommend that to you very much so. Uh, and it's articles of his that mostly came out earlier. Oh, then in that case, I've interviewed him about them all, all along. Yes, yeah, but, me and him but are close extremely good chapters. Yeah. And one of his chapters is precisely on this. Well, I mean, one of his chapters that's very good is in detail how we got extended to the border of Russia in East Europe, what Kennan called the most, the greatest mistake of the century. Right. Uh, to, and uh, Perry had opposed this and so forth. Okay, we got there for one reason to sell them weapons, to bring them up to standards of NATO standards with American weapons, right. or in some cases, European weapons. And, and by the way, 
I suspect that that's one of many reasons that Putin uh, couldn't probably stay in office if he lets Ukraine go into NATO. But it's it's probably a minor reason. But the Reiners, we want to sell them weapons, not the U.S. selling them weapons. They have a lot of other reasons. Okay, coming back, Coburn has a chapter in hypersonic stuff. Right. I, I actually interviewed him about claim, that piece on the show. Dan. And his claim is that it's just, again, a technical hoax like ABM, that for a lot of technical reasons, uh, which he gets into, uh, that it will never amount uh, to uh, to anything. This one isn't even going to work particularly. But that doesn't matter. You can, preparing to do it and developing it and looking at it, why, you can spend any number of billions doing that. So uh, what's what's bad about it? So it's one more, it's one more sales pitch for yeah. weapons. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, I think it's within my imagination to figure that a Russian boat in the Atlantic Ocean could fire a straight shot hypersonic missile and hit DC with it, or hit Newport News, New Jersey, or whatever was their target. He can do that with a he can do that with a cruise missile right sure. now. I mean, but I guess the idea is that they go so much faster. The worry I don't really know what the advantage so, so is compared what? to that. So what? Our, our Arabia, we don't have anything that could stop a cruise missile coming at us from a submarine or a ship. Well, and Nothing. I guess. Well, I, I mean, to me, the worry is just reaction time and errors, right? Is what is that? And if we if we're afraid it's a hypersonic missile, then that gives us two or three minutes to figure it out instead of 12 or whatever it is, you know, that kind of thing. As far as strategically, I don't see what makes them so much better than a regular cruise missile. I guess harder to shoot down. But we but. can't shoot. Well, in theory, you can shoot a cruise missile. But if it's, you know, it can follow a, an irregular path and can go very low, very low. It's it's not really practical. As far as I know, maybe somebody will yeah. contradict me on this. But, you know, when you mention that ship, you can't. Uh, you can't, it's not that we're the only unreasonable, insanely unreasonable people in the world. It reminds me of something we only learned a few years ago, actually, far, half a century after the event, that Khrushchev had a submarine off Hawaii. I'll, I'll bet even you haven't heard this, Scott. No, Have I don't think it? I had heard that. Okay, during this, the Cuban uh -huh. Missile Crisis, it, it, Khrushchev insanely, against the advice of uh, some of his top advisors, he sent submarines into the Caribbean with nuclear warheads, which could have started World War III, blown up the world, uh, you know, against the U.S. Navy in the Caribbean. Not a good idea. And uh, that almost did blow up the world. But meanwhile, we didn't learn that for like 30 years after the crisis. But even later, we learned at the same time, he had a submarine with a nuclear torpedo off Hawaii and with the orders that if the war started, you know, hit Hawaii. He couldn't hit Hawaii otherwise, but from a submarine, he could. This torpedo itself, you know, nuclear, could go into the harbor, you know, blow the harbor up. Was that a good idea? Was that really good thinking? Now, Khrushchev is not only not the dumbest, he's, he's one of the smartest people uh, they've had over there, compared to Brezhnev, for example, but, uh, and some of the others. But he was capable of that kind of thinking. And that's why humans are not the species to be entrusted with nuclear weapons. And what you were saying earlier, Scott, about uh, the prospects for humanity are very dark. 
Uh, it's not certain that any of this will happen. And you can play the games in Ukraine and Taiwan and uh, Baltics and everywhere else, and it may not blow the world up. That's a possibility. And they're ready to gamble on that and play these games for a variety of reasons, diplomatic reasons, staying in office, keeping alliances where we're the leader. Uh, well, look, we're putting nuclear, we're outfitting the F-35, which you know, Scott, is the, the biggest pork program in history. It's a trillion and a half uh, dollars for a weapon that, uh, for any of its various functions, there are better weapons. It may or may not ever be used. But anyway, even Bernie Sanders can't oppose, in fact, he supported an F-35 base, or F-35 being based in his state. And, uh, you know, he just doesn't pay to oppose these things. So now they're putting, they're outfitting them for nuclear weapons for our F-35s that we want to give, put in Germany. Now, nuclear weapons in Germany, hmm, you know, under what circumstances would they drop those nuclear weapons? Well, circumstances in which all Germans die and nearly everybody else in the world dies and without the F-35s. So the F-35s are just, you know, one more trigger, you might say, uh, on these things. Right. This is and this is our species. It's yeah, not see, that's, that's kind of the same point about the hypersonics, right, is they don't really give you any better strategic advantage, but they no. do increase all the risks. They Same do, thing here. And, they, and, and there's money. There's money. There's good. Right. It's no, nobody wants World War III. Nobody. But preparing for World War III, yeah. very profitable, very important to our, to our society. And also there's certain political advantages in threatening World War III. And for that, you prepare for it, which is very profitable, etc. That's what we've been doing for 70 years. Yeah. And it's a miracle We've uh, we've gotten gotten through this far. We've come very close. The miracle we need is for the public to become aware, to let this into their awareness, and make it part of the pressure they bring to bear on our representatives and our presidents, which it currently isn't. It isn't in campaigns. It's not an issue. Maybe that's like this. While we have these. 69 or so groups coming right now, conceivably we could get into the discussion with this kind of thing, and maybe that can make a difference. And otherwise, humanity will go on, 1%, 2%, there's quite a few, maybe uh, maybe 10%, that would be 700 million, wow, that's you know, big civilizations with that, and you can do it all again, uh, all again. But I, I must say, uh, that's where we're heading. Omnicide. And are you the one who coined the term omnicide in your new book there? No, it's from a um, uh, philosopher named Somerville who mm. invented it years ago. And of course, as I say, omnicide can be, you know, sounds as though it's defined as everybody dying or even all life dying. Well, that's not in the cards. Uh, even with nuclear winter, or climate. Um, the climate, we don't even know what happens on the population. I've never heard. Uh, you know, civilization is totally disorganized, but uh, what happens exactly to the population, I don't know. But in nuclear winter, we do know pretty well. Yeah. Cut off the sunlight, freeze all the harvests for a year, and actually for most of a decade. Mm -hmm. And we know what that'll do 
So it doesn't kill everybody. But for purposes of discussion, uh, I've been calling that omnicide, uh, Somerville's terms. Right. And we shouldn't be, no alliance like NATO or Japan should be based on a threat of blowing up the world to protect that ally. That's, well, I don't know. It sounds, you know, I've been using the word insane, but how can you say that? Very sane, reasonable, uh, respected, highly informed, highly educated people have been doing this for 70 years. Mm -hmm. So is it insane? Well, is it insane to, to destroy the species? No, to risk it, to risk it, which is what they're doing. Evidently not, clinically. It it's, all comes down way, to social psychology, right? It's it's the diffusion of responsibility. It's right? a way of nobody really, off. nobody really whose fault it is, and so it's only a, many people's fault a little bit, and so it's sort of like a lynching or something where it's <laughs> rationalized away. In that very sense, light, you know? very light. I, yeah. I I was speaking just the other day, Dan, with Dan McAdams, who's foreign policy advisor for the great Ron Paul all those years in his congressional office. Um, and he was talking about, we were discussing the Ukraine and the Kazakhstan crisis. And he was talking about, uh, he wouldn't name names, but he was saying someone that he knows personally in Washington, D.C., within the halls of power. Of course, he spent many years living there, uh, working with Ron. And uh, he wanted to emphasize, it was really important to note you talk about this a bit in your book, Secrets, and I guess in Doomsday Machine, too, but he was saying it's so important to note that these people actually are not criminally insane, psychopathic, sociopathic, monster, blood-soaked madmen like you might think of them if you live in Austin and just think of D.C. as just Mordor, you know, over there where these people are just maniacs. And yet he says, no, it's really not like that. It's just... You know, it's you can call it a simple mindedness or or being, you know, stuck in an echo chamber or a bubble or something where, look, man, everybody knows we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We're the red, white and blue. We always do the right thing. If it wasn't the right thing, we wouldn't be doing it. And so that's why we're doing it. And it's just like that. And how then in all other aspects, these are normal humans. It's just that's the way they look at it. And of course, Dan and I, and I'm not sure about your position on Ukraine, sir, but and Dan McAdams and I both look at that thing and ask the question first, why is this all W. Bush and Barack Obama's fault? And see, you know, history didn't begin when Vladimir Putin did something rash. Let's try to figure out what led to it. But of course, in D.C., they don't have any incentive whatsoever, boy, especially in the Biden administration, for example, to say, yeah, we personally screwed this up back when we were the Obama administration uh, in uh, 2014 and 15 when we started the when we did the coup and started the war. So, you know, they don't have any any incentive to be honest about their role in it. So they then they see everything that the other side does in reaction to their actions as aggression and horror and terror. And now they are the heroes who get to dress up in armor and defend Europe from the Russian hordes. And 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 they convince themselves this in a way, again, back to the real point, that they're they're not like um, you know, a serial killer or something. They could kill every last human, or as you said, not every last human, but only nine-tenths of humanity in an afternoon or, you know, over the course of 
you know, a year or two after they engage in a general war over some ridiculous so-called interest. But then, you know, if you sat down with them at lunch, they're fine. And that's, it's the, the incentive structure and the social psychology of the system itself that makes it that way. Again, just the same thing as taking a check from a lobbyist and saying, okay, thank you. I'll make sure to buy more H-bombs this year. Thanks for helping me get reelected. And not thinking that that's completely crazy, that that's how you would, you know, base your legislative decisions and your appropriations and things on those kinds of deals. But it's difficult to understand for me being from Austin and never having been part of that machine. I remember in, I'll, I'll get the number wrong and you'll correct me. But I think in secrets, you say that 40,000 different men and women inside the government knew that the Gulf of Tonkin incident was a lie. And they all kept the secret until you finally leaked the Pentagon Papers almost 10 years later, or seven years later. Isn't that right that you say that? Well, since you ask, I didn't give a figure in the book for that, the number. Oh, I, if you said... If you said 30,000, that would be like everybody in the Pentagon. No, everybody in the Pentagon didn't know that. Hundreds, tens, hundreds, I would say hundreds. Knew it. I didn't give a figure that I think, but a great you could have many. swore it was in the thousands or something. Anyway, I'm old and decrepit here. Yeah, but You're anyway, 90 years old and a lot sharper not, than me. Not like, not like me. But listen, uh, Scott, I, I have to unhappily agree with everything you just said. You made a number of separate points. But I, I agree uh, with each of them. When you say, for instance, they don't say we did this wrong, so uh, let's change it. Uh, and you know, why don't they say that chance? They just don't. Virtually no one. Almost, I, it's, it's just unknown. It's, it doesn't seem to be human. And the other point is not because these people are unusually corrupt or bad or anything like that. No. There is, I once said to Gravel, Senator Gravel, when he was in, no, no, it was after he was in, uh, in 2006, I won't go into all the context, but I said, um, do you think that this Congress is exceptionally cowardly, the Democrats, in 2006, for, for not, by the way, moving toward uh, impeaching Bush? He said, no, usually cowardly, you know, usually, same way as before, 30 years before. Well, the exception, there are exceptions extremely small number of people. So that's why I keep saying it is a species problem here. And I think it comes down to, uh, you know, people want to say, by the way, it's it's capitalists only. Well, yes, capitalists certainly, uh, capitalism of all kinds, certainly contributes to this. It doesn't block it. It uh, contributes. But what do you, the Soviet Union can be defined various ways in their system. Some people don't like to call it socialist, but whatever it, it did call itself socialist, but whatever it was, it wasn't capitalist. And they built a doomsday machine. So, you know, you don't, it, it isn't, the whole problem isn't defined just by capitalism. I think in our genes, there is a very tremendous Im, Im, impulse to divide other humans into us and them, us and others, and uh, the small and in the large, you know, back when we were hunter-gatherers and uh, had to avoid others, and then with civilization and war and uh, <laughs> a lot of other things that came with irrigation, uh, with irrigated field agriculture and whatnot, the population exploded. Okay, so all that time, I think the it's very easy to get 
people to regard certain others as a source of fear, distrust, and contempt, uh, and their enemies. And then even the ones who aren't enemies are still others you don't care about. Something that comes up right now on climate, it just happens in a discussion the other, the other day, somebody was saying, don't these rich people, the, the, the CEOs of Exxon, who <laughs> Tom Engelhardt made the point that there should be a crime of terracide, T-E-R-R-A-C-I-D. Well, again, it seems a little exaggerated. They're not destroying the planet. They're just destroying the ecology of humans or of civilization. Humans will survive for a while. I just but, came up with the perfect compromise, Dan. We'll take all the nuclear weapons and we'll make electricity out of them. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. But okay. So they said on the climate, uh, Exxon, which I look, I expect. I was talking to a couple of friends the other day, twins, who are 21. And I said, you know, and their, uh, their father's about nine years younger than I am. And I said, when you get to be my age, when your father gets to be my age, 2030, supposedly, according to the Paris Accords, we will have cut fossil fuel emissions in half on the way to eliminating them uh, on balance by 2050. By 2030, they're supposed to be cut in half. That's not going to happen. In fact, I said, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure, not certain, they will still be rising as they are every year since Paris, and they'll be rising in 2030. So anyway, somebody said, well, don't these rich people care, like the CEO of, of uh, Exxon, about their grandchildren? And here's my speculative answer. Yes, they do care about their grandchildren. They don't care about your grandchildren. Right. They That's why they're building they're, lifeboats and buying property in Argentina. And <laughs> they think their grandchildren will do fine. And they're probably right. Unless they're at ground zero for a nuclear winter. But if they're not at ground zeros, they'll be in New Zealand or they'll be somewhere else. And if it's the climate change, there will still be luxury resorts for the rich. They just won't be in the same places they are now. Yeah, they they'll be, be in orbit. Caribbean. <laughs> they won't Dubai, I think, will... With all the air conditioning they have, I don't think <laughs> Dubai will uh, be a place to congregate. All right. But there'll be other places, Antarctica, uh, you know, or Siberia or somewhere. They'll gather in their bubbles, domes, and uh, uh, they'll be all right. And they do You know what? I think the rest of us, regardless of the temperature outside, will be a lot better off without them on the outside of the dome. I'll take it. Anyway... <laughs> Listen, we better stop here, Dan, but I love you. Thank you so much for doing the show again. I love talking with you so much. And Thank I recommend so highly your great books to people. Both of them uh, are just incredible. No, I love it too, Scott. Okay, keep at it. Bye. All right, take care. All right, you guys, that's, of course, the heroic Daniel Ellsberg, leaker of the Pentagon Papers, author of Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, and the incredible book, The Doomsday Machine. Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And that has been Anti-War Radio for this morning. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director at Antiwar.com and author of Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Find my full interview archive at scotthorton.org. Follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. And I'm here every Sunday morning from 8.30 to 9 on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. See you next week.